And as they're dismissed, I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 17. Topic of our discussion this morning is learning to trust the God of the impossible. Learning to trust the God of the impossible. Book of Genesis, chapter 17. And I want us to read verses 1 through verse 8 together. You can open your Bibles to that place and then we will begin reading. <clears throat> and let me just, I'll, I'll touch on verse 16 of chapter 16 just to give you the connection going into chapter 17 since we had a few weeks break in between with uh, Doug sharing the word of God with us over the last three weeks. So verse 16 of chapter 16. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And remember, Ishmael was the son born of a physical, normal means. And God's going to promise Abraham another son that the book of Galatians says is a son born as an act of God. So one birth by natural means, a lack of faith, one born by an act of God in response to faith. Okay, so that's how this sets up as we move into chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. First time that name is ever used in the Bible of God. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be their God. This is a very uh, powerful passage of Scripture in the book of Genesis. It marks the transition from the struggles of Abraham to the greater faith of Abraham. One of the things that we've seen as we studied Abraham's life is we know that in the New Testament he is exalted as a hero of the faith. Okay, He is a, a man that God calls the believer. He is quintessential of what it is to believe and trust God. But we have also seen as we've studied his life that those that are believers may experience times when their faith is weak, when they struggle with trusting God because of circumstances because of the enormous nature of the promises that God has given and so they will go through seasons of struggle what we see is that Abraham is a man in process and I think all of us as we as we look at this we see Abraham upheld in the New Testament as a great example of what it is to trust God we can go back into the Old Testament and also see he was a man who struggled and whom God had to work through a process towards becoming the man that God wanted him to be and I don't know about you, but for me, that is downright encouraging. If the man that God would hold up and say, here's a man of faith, struggled and lived in flesh like you and I did, and yet God is, is not reneging on his plan and his purpose. God is working out 
his will in Abraham's life. He's not changing his plan and purpose. He's changing people so that they can be the instruments that fulfill his purpose. Okay, and I think as we study Abraham's life, keep that in mind. God is bringing Abraham to an impasse. He's bringing him to an impossible circumstance. Age is increasing. His wife is barren. There is no offspring. Therefore, there is no way that the promises of chapter 12 can be fulfilled in his life. And so he gets restless and he tries to work out a human plan. And a son comes through it through he and Hagar. But God says, not him. Someone else will be your heir. And so as we look at this text, God is going to reveal himself to Abraham in a powerful way that will cause Abraham to realize God is going to be faithful to his promises. Trust him in impossible circumstances because he is the God of the impossible. This is a text that will teach us about the faithfulness of God in the lives of imperfect people. I think we often think that the work of God in our lives is contingent upon perfection. Okay? And I think the thing we need to realize is, you know what? God's not going to let us in sin and tolerate sin in our life. He's going to bring correction into our life to change us so that He can work out His purposes in redeemed, delivered, and forgiven people. And that's what the story of Abraham ultimately is pushing towards. Here's a man that God is rescuing from his flesh, a man that God is going to use in very glorious and powerful ways. And as you read this story, it should just encourage within your heart a deeper trust in the God who is revealed in this passage of Scripture. Purpose of this text, that we would see God a little more clearly. So let's look at verse 1. And I mentioned that this happens when Abraham is 99 years old. The birth of the son of flesh, chapter 16, verse 16, is when he was 86 years old. So we've gone through a period of time of 13 to 14 years, and we don't know if Abraham has heard from God during that time period. What we know from the text is 13 years later, God is picking up his man. He's going to rescue him from his fleshly plans and bring him back into the realm of the miraculous and show himself to Abraham and cause him to trust him and to see God's plans and purposes fulfilled in his life. So the first thing we see in chapter one, the Lord appeared. He said to him, I am God almighty. Now, most of you are probably familiar with the translation of this into Hebrew. I am El Shaddai. All right, this is the name of God. So what we first find is revealed, God's character is revealed in this name. He is God Almighty. He was known previously as El, Ohim, God the Creator. Now he is revealed as El Shaddai, the God of impossible circumstances. Why does he reveal himself to Abraham in that way? You know why? Because he had promised to Abraham a physical heir that would come through him through Sarah. And that hasn't happened. Barrenness is the stumbling block. And when God comes to Abraham, 13 years now pass, God comes to him and says, Abraham, I am El Shaddai. I want to tell you who I am so that you'll know what it is to trust in an almighty, all-sufficient, and powerful God. What is God saying through this statement to Abraham? He's saying, Abraham, I am enough for you. Trust me, don't become restless. Don't try to find human solutions to God-sized problems. And that's our tendency. And so what does God do? He comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I am God the Creator, Elohim. But I also want you to know that I am El Shaddai, the God who created the world and the God who controls the world. 
the God who is capable of the miraculous, because that is exactly what Abraham needs in his life at this point. And you'll find later in the text, Abraham is clearly aware of the fact that if a son is going to come through him and Sarai, it will have to be the work of God. It will have to be a miracle. God reveals himself in this way to Abraham as El Shaddai, so that Abraham would trust him to do the impossible. Folks, why does God reveal himself to us? Why do we spend time in worship praising and exalting characteristics and attributes of God? Do you know why? So that we will become people who honor him by trusting him. By walking before him and loving him and obeying him. Because we trust him completely to do the things in our lives that we are not capable of doing. So first we find the revelation of God's character. The response, Abraham, trust me. Secondly, look at the call of God that goes forth in, in verse 1, second half. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Okay, what is God saying to Abraham? Abraham, walk in my sight and stop messing around with human planning that leads to sin and trouble. That's what we saw in chapter 16, didn't we? Abraham concocts a plan along with his wife Sarah, along with Hagar, and they create a disaster, a mess. God says, Abraham, Stick with me. Walk before me. Very similar to what parents say to their children when they go into the grocery store or into the mall when the child is little and they want the child to maintain proximity. They want them to stay nearby, stay within my line of sight. Why? Why does parents do we say that to our kids when they're little and we're walking them around at the mall or at the zoo or wherever we are? Why do we say that? Because if you walk before me, if you walk in the realm of my presence, you will experience the blessing of my presence and my protection as your dad, my love and affection as your mom. Do you see? So God says, Abraham, walk before me. Don't run off into your own world, into your own plans. Walk in my presence. Because there you will experience my blessing. The condition for staying in the presence of God, however, is what? It's remaining blameless. And the idea of the word here is certainly not perfection. We know that, is Abraham capable of perfection? I mean, look at the story, okay? He lies about his wife as to his relationship with her. They concoct a plan along with he and Sarah, a way to get a child through a physical means so that God is kind of left off the hook. He is a man who is capable of severe doubt and unbelief. And God is calling him back to a place. Abraham, live within the sphere of my sight. Walk in my presence and be blameless. Be free from sin. Be a man of integrity. God does not require perfection from us. We do not have that to offer God. He gives that to us as a gift. But once he gives that to us as a gift, he fills us with his spirit so that we can live a life of integrity before God. So that every part of our heart, the part that is seen by people, the part that is unseen by people, is blameless. That invites the power of God into our lives. Through sin, what do we do? We grieve the Spirit of God. We quench the power of God in our life. But when we walk before Him and maintain integrity and blamelessness, what do we do? We invite the power of God. What is God saying? Abraham, I want to help you, but I will not help you in your human plans. And often we feel far from God. You know why? Because we're off in our own plans. God says, Abraham, walk before me. Abraham, trust me. 
Live a blameless life. Be a person of integrity. And I think one of the things that we see in this call is that here's a man who struggled with blamelessness. He's a man who struggled with integrity. And what is God saying? Abraham, come on. Do you see the picture of grace here? A man who has struggled with human planning, with getting it done in his terms, in his own way. And God says, Abraham, come on. And folks, I want to say this to you today. God's work in the life of his children will become a stiff rebuke when that is necessary. But largely you will find God, if you were his child, by the Spirit, entreating you, calling you, walk in my presence. Because that's where blessing is. Okay, when a parent says to their child, going into the store, going into the mall, whatever it is, and they say, hey, stay nearby. That is not a rebuke. It's not chastising. It's an expression of love. It's an expression of desire to be able to be there for the child to protect and love. And this is exactly what God is saying to Abraham. Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Verse 3. I love Abraham's response to this. It is a physical response to God's presence. A physical, visible expression of adoration before God. Abraham fell face down. Why? It may be that he hasn't had this kind of interaction with God for 13 years. Now God is manifesting himself to Abraham in some type of form that is overwhelming to Abraham, this new revelation of God. Abraham, I am God Almighty. In the midst of your impossible circumstance, I can do it. And he's going to call upon Abraham for a deeper and greater faith that is going to stretch Abraham even further and into places he has never been before so that he will see God and understand Him in ways that he has never understood Him before. And that is the blessing of the Christian life, growing to know God in ways that we have never known Him before. What does God do here? Verse 4, He's going to restate His promises to Abraham. Notice what He says. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. If you go back to Genesis 15 and verse 5, what do you find? You find the same promise. Abraham, look at the stars. Like that will be your offspring. A miraculous outcome. How does Abraham feel about that? He's saying, God, I I would love to see that happen, but I have to be honest and say my circumstances aren't encouraging me towards that kind of faith. And what is God saying? God's saying, Abraham, trust me, I am reaffirming for you the promises that I gave you long ago. Now notice how this text unfolds. He says, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Okay, what's going on here? All right, basically, this is what's going on. God is taking the name Abram and changing Abraham's name to Abraham. Changing him from being an exalted father, that's the name of Abram, to Abraham, the father of multitudes. Okay? Before Abraham is that. That's what God says I'm doing. I have made you Abraham. Now, folks, when somebody gives names to someone, or gives a name to someone. What kind of a position are they with in, in relationship to that individual? Okay? A parent that names their child is in a relationship of control and authority, right? They have responsibility. What is God saying to Abraham? God is saying, Abraham, I am changing your name. I am by this name. And in the Hebrew culture, this was very prevalent, even in the ancient world. 
the name always carried deep significance. Okay? My parents weren't Christians when I was named. Okay? So they didn't choose my name, Timothy, for any biblical purpose. Okay? My other siblings' names are Kenny and Donnie. Okay? There's nothing spiritual going on there. Okay? I happen to end up with the name Timaotheos. Timothy means I honor God. Okay? That's what the name means. Unintentional on the part of my mom. She just liked the name. Okay? When God's changing Abraham's name, he's like saying, Abraham, I just don't like the sound of Abram. It's not regal. I'm going to change it to Abraham. No, God is giving him a name that defines his future. Okay, because that's what El Shaddai can do. That's what the God who controls all things, the God who is omnipotent in power, that's what he can do. And so God is giving Abraham first this name change. I want you to notice how this is stated. Okay, your, no, your name will no longer, verse 5, be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham, for I have, and what's it say? I have made you a father of nations. And Abraham's thinking, no, you haven't. No, you haven't. The promise of the son from chapter 12, that's not fulfilled. It hasn't happened. You rebuked me for my human attempt. I am not the father of nations. What is God doing? God is speaking about the future as if it is already what? It's already done. Why? Because God lives where? In the past, in the present, and he lives in your future. He was before before, and he is after after. That's the God that's speaking to Abraham. You know what I'm saying, God, if I was the Abraham, God is saying to Abraham, if I was there before, before, and if I'm there after, after, trust me. Trust me. This name is a promise to Abraham. You who have struggled to have offspring, you will be the father of many, many nations. An exalted father. I will make you fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and your descendants. So God changes his name. Verse 15. We'll come back up there in a moment. Verse 15. God also said to Abraham, as for your as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah, which means princess. You know what a princess does? A princess gives birth. And if a princess didn't give birth in the ancient world, she was somehow considered less of a citizen, less of a person, unworthy. And what is God saying to Abraham? Your wife that you don't think can conceive because she's 90 years old, she will. Nations will come from her. Kings will come from her. And Abraham is thinking, okay, Okay, it's like when somebody says something to you that you're like, yeah, I don't trust you anymore. I don't believe you can do that. Abraham's saying, okay, okay. What is God saying? God's saying, this woman who has struggled, okay, go back to chapter 16. What's Sarah? Sarah in chapter 16 is a mess right along with Abraham. And God is saying, Abraham, I am going to work through her. And he gives her this promise of a name change. And then verse 17, you have to love the response of Abraham. Abraham again falls face down. He laughed and he said to himself. Okay, so he falls down again. He's laughing and is, is he talking to God? 
No, he's, he's, talk, he's having this dialogue in his head. He's filled with laughter, which is what? Okay, and I think, I think as you look at this, you say, okay, this is a nervous laughter. I don't think it, it's, it's an absolute kind of unbelief. It's not mocking God. It's astonishment. It's, okay, okay. All right, if, if my wife came to me today and said, I'm pregnant, I would be like, I'd do that. I'd fall face down, I would laugh. I'd be like, you've got to be kidding me. Okay? John Whitehead, when he texted me a few months ago and told me that his dear wife, Veronica, was expectant, texted me and said, I just want you to know so you don't hear it through the grapevine, my wife's expectant. And then he said this. He said, I know you're laughing. Okay? Abraham hears this, and what does he say? He laughed. Did he want it to be true? Yes. Did he believe it could be true? This is where he's wrestling. What does he He says, God, I, I want that to be true, but it's bizarre. It's a weird thought. Can a woman who's 90 give birth to a son? Can a man who's 100 years old father a child? And remembering that time frames were a little bit different, but things have advanced far enough along in Abraham and Sarah's life that Abraham is he's astonished. Folks, we understand that, right? We understand what it is for God to promise good and great things in our lives. We, we, sometimes we're wrestling in the in-between. We're wrestling in the waiting period, in the already, but the not yet. We, we wrestle there, but God's given a name. And then I love what happens in verse 19 through 22. Then God, here's God's response to Abraham's laughter and his interrogation of God. And, and, and really, what is he doing? At the end of verse 18, he says, God, I hear what you're saying, but I'm 100 and she's 90. And, and what are he, he's wanting God to be reasonable rather than wanting God to be miraculous. Do you see? He wants God to function in the realm of what is predictable and likely. Where does God function? God function in the, functions in the realm of the miraculous. He functions in the realm of the impossible. Right? And we see that with the disciples when Jesus is raised from the dead, which he predicted. What did they say? They did not believe it. Right? Because we function in the realm of the predictable, of the possible. God says, I'm El Shaddai. I function in the realm of the impossible. I specialize in that. And God says to him, verse 19, and this is the corrective, then God said, yes, meaning Ishmael will live and Ishmael will be greatly blessed. Abraham, I'll grant you that gift. That's pure grace. I'm going to bless the son that came along in the wrong way, Abraham, because that's the kind of God that I am. But I will not forsake my plan and purpose for your life. Notice what he says. Yes, yes, we'll do that. But we're not going to get me off the hook of the miraculous need for power here. We're not going to get God out of an apparently impossible circumstance. God is going to work in the impossible circumstance. Yes, but Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. What is God doing? God's forecasting into the future. You will call him Isaac. And here's what's fascinating, because I just want to deal with these three names. Okay, Isaac means what? All your translations somewhere down at the bottom, if you have NIV, it says this name means laughter. Okay? Why does God do that? You know why God does that? It's why he gives all these names. They are constant reminders that God is essential in your life. 
that His working, His power, His plan, His purpose will only be fulfilled. It will only succeed in the power of God. And what is God doing in this? You know what God's doing? He's saying to Abraham, that son Ishmael, he's not the son of promise. Good try. Folks, do we ever have this tendency to deliver God from impossible circumstances by not trusting Him to do great things in our lives? But we do that. And we come up with human alternatives, with plans that are predictable. And God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Isaac. And every time you call his name, here's what will echo through your mind. You laughed. But God did what seemed impossible. Folks, think about this. The circumstances in your life that you can't change, can God change them? Oh, yeah. The people you can't change. Can God change them? Yes. How long will it take? Sometimes it may take longer. Often it takes longer than I want it to. God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And through that son, I am going to do amazing things. Notice what he says. "As As for Ishmael, I have heard. Verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac. He doesn't even exist yet. His name means laughter. He is the son whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. And when he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. This is a powerful statement. God came, gave the information that was necessary to cause Abraham to trust him. And then what happens? God goes away. And you know what Abraham's left with? Abraham's left with the task of explaining this to who? To Sarah. Okay. It's an amazing picture. He's got to explain this to his family. And when the child is named, why is he being named Isaac? Because when God told me this would happen, I laughed. I didn't believe that he could do it. But he did. And we'll see that as we move down the road. So three times God changes names of people to show that he is in absolute and utter control. Can I reflect you forward to two name changes in the New Testament? Simon Peter. Right? He's called Simon. He, he's a man that struggles with his flesh, struggles with believing the promises of God. On the day that he confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What happens? What happens? God says to him, you are Peter. Which means what? Solid rock. How? Because the Spirit of God is going to come into him in Acts chapter 2, and he's going to become a witness to the things that he willingly denied. God changed him and changed his name. The Apostle Paul, what was his name before he became a Christian? His name was Saul. God says, I'm going to change your name. And I'm going to make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. Folks, that's what God does. That's the power of God. He can exercise absolute control in your life. Trust him. And then what does he do? He also gives covenant promises. And I want you to notice this in verses 7 and 8. He says, Abraham, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now living as a guest or as an alien, I will give it to you as an everlasting possession and to your descendants after you and I will be their God. So we see the character of God, we see the call of God, we see the control of God in this story, and now what do we find? We find the covenant of God. 
which is what? It is his promise. It is his agreement with his people about what he will do. Exactly what God does with us in salvation. He brings us into a new relationship that is irrevocable. And there he loves us. In this story, what are the aspects of the covenant? One is that it is extensive. God talks about it being an everlasting covenant. Meaning that the promises of God that he made to Abraham were guaranteed to have future outcomes. Outcomes in relationship to the land of Palestine. Verse 8, I will give you this land where you are living as an everlasting possession. But the primary gift that God gives to Abraham is not physical. You see, one day Abraham is going to die. He's going to exit this earth. What is the gift that God gives to Abraham that is most precious and life-altering? And passion producing. What is it? Verse 8. The whole land of Canaan. I will get where you are now living as an alien. I will give you as an everlasting possession. To you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. And of verse 7 he says. I will be your God. And I will be the God of your descendants after you. What is the greatest gift that God gives to us? The greatest gift that God gives to us is himself. Folks, do you realize that no world religion, not one, offers this promise? Of a God who is your Father, who is personally related to you, and loves you, and indwells you by His Holy Spirit? That only in the context of biblical Christianity can God be known in this personal sort of way that is life-altering and life-changing. Now, here's the part of this that is, to me, amazing. In promising to Abraham... The expansion of his people and the promise of the land. How does this work out? And, and who really are the descendants of Abraham? That's the question that comes up. Okay, we know that Abraham has physical descendants, right? The nation of Israel and they inhabit the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. God gives that to them. But this promise takes on, in the book of Galatians, Enormous ramifications that include every believer in Christ. And this is what I want you to see from the book of Galatians chapter 3. Listen to this. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, listen to this. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Meaning what? That the church is the recipient, ultimately, of the Abrahamic promise. It was carried through the nation of Israel. But then what does it do? It explodes into a global campaign that we understand to be the Great Commission. Okay, and for every believer... Everyone who comes to God by faith, which in this context in the Old Testament included the aliens that were in Abraham's house who were not his offspring. They also participate in the sign of what it is to be the people of God. So this promise has far long-term reaching ramifications. And it is exceedingly powerful when you see this. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. Which is to say what? Okay, and the, and the verses that come to mind for me are Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3. He says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. 
He will live among them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. When is this promise to Abraham ultimately fulfilled in a way that is everlasting, unalterable, and unchangeable? When is that fulfilled? You know what's fulfilled? It's fulfilled when we get to heaven. And Jew and Gentile, people from every tongue, nation, and tribe become part of this group of people called the people of God. And God says in Revelation 21.3, I will be with them, with this whole people group, in the ultimate promised land, which is what? Canaan was always a picture of heaven. And in heaven, who do you find there? You find all the people of God, all who have placed faith and trust in the covenant promises of God that in the first uh, Old Testament is pictured through circumcision, later through the cross work of Jesus Christ, and people are swept into the kingdom by faith in the shed blood of Christ. And all who trust in Him are never put to shame. They come into a new relationship with Him. Here's what I find fascinating in this text. God is making promises to Abraham that affect future generations. And what did he say to him early on? You know what he said to him? Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Why? Because Abraham, your life is having an impact on the next generation. Folks, if God has rescued you from your sin and you have the privilege of having kids in your house, children in your home, you know what God wants you to do? God wants you to walk before him and be blameless because there are people around you who are watching you. And he wants to pass this blessing of Abraham onto the next generation, onto the next generation. And here's the amazing truth. The promises that are given to Abraham ultimately find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And everyone who is in the person of Jesus Christ by grace through faith is part of the promises that God made to Abraham. Because ultimately it's through Sarah's line that Jesus comes. Okay, so this, this promise in Genesis 17 wraps itself around the gospel. How can God become my God if I'm a sinner? I need to be forgiven by His grace through the sacrificial blood of Christ. Let me just, I'm going to give you a quick summary of this issue of circumcision that comes up so that you can kind of get your arms around how all this ties together. Okay, there's the sign of God's covenant that's dealt with in verses 9 through 14. Okay, it is the affirmation of the covenant is the external visible evidence of this relationship okay just like i wear a wedding ring okay this wedding ring is not my marriage relationship okay i can take this ring off and i am still what still married okay i can have this sign on and not love my wife as i should okay so this sign is a picture of a greater reality Okay, in the Old Testament, circumcision for the people of God was the picture of a greater reality. Okay, and I'll just give you this, this kind of quick summary of the, the nature of this sign. And God, what does he do? Throughout Scripture, he's giving signs. He gives Noah the rainbow as a sign of his promise not to destroy the earth again by water. He gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. What is it? It's the sign that these promises are certain and sure and that you are participating in them by faith. And ultimately, Jesus gives us the sign. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, now, what about this sign of circumcision? Let me just say this real quick, okay? Because all of you are thinking this. You're thinking, I'm glad I don't have to talk about this, okay? 
And I've never heard someone say, you know what, I'm just going to select out this passage of Scripture and preach a sermon on this topic. Okay? But however, it's part of the text. And it adds to the meaning and understanding of the text. So we, 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 it'd be easy for me just to skip it and say, okay, that's good. Okay? But I wouldn't give you the full picture of what this is about. This external sign of circumcision becomes the symbol that this individual is part of the people of God. And I think it's important that we understand why this symbol. Because, okay, in our culture we're saying, okay, it's kind of weird that God would say that. The question is, why does he say it? What's the, what are the ramifications? What's the important? What is the meaning behind this, this sign of the covenant? So in verse 9 he says, God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant that you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Okay, it will be the sign. And here's the question. What is the significance of the sign? What, does the, what did God intend for the sign to say? These are just quick summary thoughts, okay? Number one is this. The sign was born on the physical organ of procreation. It dealt with sexuality. Okay, sexuality has become a major problem in our culture, right? You know what's God saying to Abraham? Abraham, keep yourself pure. To the organ of procreation. Okay? Because that physical relationship with your wife can be a great blessing, but it can also be a means by which you deeply damage your relationship with your wife. It's the means through which procreation comes. It's the means through which the promise is going to be fulfilled. Okay, and I don't want to be graphic, but that's, that's the facts. And so that's where this sign is born. As a regular reminder in that act, that God is blessing and God is working and that it is capable of great good. In the text, it also says that it was to be for every male. At that time in the culture, males held the, the lead role, the lead responsibility for the family. And men, I would say this to you. Ladies, love a godly man. Give yourself to God completely, totally, and early, in every way, even in the realm of sexuality. Okay, guard that. Give yourself to God in that way. It goes to every male. It was a picture and a reminder of purity. And I think Deuteronomy 30 makes this clear. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. Okay? He will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and so that you will live. Where is life found? Life is found in loving God. That's where true living is really found. In Him there is, the psalmist says, there is fullness of joy. At His right hand, pleasures forevermore. And one day that is where every believer is destined to be with Him forever. This sign was a picture of purity which says that all impurity must be laid aside from the hearts and lives of the people of God. It is a commitment of the total self to total purity. That's what God wants from us. And that is pictured in this sign it was a picture of cleansing that looked forward to a greater picture of cleansing through the work of Christ 
Okay, the last thing I'll say about the sign is this. It was a bloody sign. Okay, there's no way to get around this. Okay, blood was shed. The covenant was ratified. It was the contract signed. Okay, how are we forgiven? Through more blood. The blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish and without spot. And when we trust in that blood to cleanse us from our sin, what happens? All of our impurity and all of our sin is rolled away. And what happens? We are brought into this new relationship with God. We become part of the Abrahamic covenant and look forward to the promises that are ultimately described for us in the book of Revelation 21 and verse 3. They will be my people. I will be their God. They will be with me forever. Those are the, if you will, large promises that God is giving to Abraham at this time. Promises that will affect the rest of his life. What is the ultimate test of faith? What is the ultimate sign that Abraham gets what God is saying? Okay, I, all I know from verses 9 through 14 is that God has told Abraham to do this and that to not participate in the signs of God's truth is dangerous. That's what verse 14 says. To ignore the signs, the directives of God, means to be cut off, to be separated from God. Okay? And yet when I come down to verse 23, what do I find? I find the greatest evidence of heart change. The greatest evidence that Abraham finally gets it in its fullness. What is it? Verse 23, on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael, notice the new name, and those in his household brought with his money every male in his household, and he circumcised them as God had told him. Okay, folks, what is the sign that I am in covenant with God? How do I know that I am in a personal, life-altering, life-changing relationship with God? Is it simply the external sign? The answer to that question is no. Because Paul's going to say in the book of Galatians, you can have the external sign of circumcision and not be a child of God. Which means what? It's possible for you to have the external sign of baptism and not really be a child of God. It's possible to take communion and not really be a child of God. Okay, the sign that I am truly in God's family and truly trusting Him is I walk in obedience to His commands even when they don't make sense. And what is God doing here for Abraham? He has given him an enormous promise. He has called him to a step of obedience. Abraham has taken that step of obedience. And the covenant has been ratified. And the plan of God, the program of God, is moving forward. In the life of an imperfect man who has been rescued from God, by God from his own sinfulness and now has been given insight into the great and glorious promises of God. This morning, is God calling you to a step of obedience? That's going to require trust in God Almighty. Are you willing to take that step? We also learn that God's patience in this text is amazing. With Abraham and with each of us, his mercies are new. Every morning he continues to pursue. And he, the God that we serve, is indeed El Shaddai, all-sufficient, all-powerful. And God's power and God's greatness and God's faithfulness and God's mercy and God's grace is the explanation of success in Abraham's life. And it is the explanation for success in the life of every 
believer. When we experience success in our lives, when we experience growth and progress, what is it owing to? It's owing to the power of God and His rescue and His work. God keeps His word. He is able to do everything that He has promised. And I encourage you this morning, trust the God of the impossible. And after you trust Him with your life and with your heart, by grace, through faith, you become a child of God's. Now, live for Him. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. Walk before me, God says, and be blameless. Live a life of integrity so that those that follow you in your house, in your church, in your community, in your workplace, see God of the impossible changing you and working powerfully through your life for His glory. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?